Hi, and welcome to Utopia Road. My name is Pete Smith. I'm the host of this podcast of stories and interviews. I'm going to offer you a berry tale today. It's called Mrs. Morin. If you like what you hear, you can drop us an email at utopiaroadpictures at gmail.com or you can send us a voice message right to the podcast. Hope you're doing okay in this rather unique time on planet Earth. Lots to figure out. If you like what you hear, keep spreading the word, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Mrs. Morin, A Berry Tale. The last time I saw Mrs. Morin, the last time I ever saw Mrs. Morin, was in Mike's Milk on Dunlop Street. It was a sunny day in August, late in the afternoon, a breeze coming up from the bay from just in behind the store. I stepped into the air conditioning of Mike's, and there wasn't a whole lot going on. The 16-year-old behind the counter was giving someone directions on how to get to Oro on the back roads, and the other customer in the place, at least the only other customer I could see, was over at the chip rack, deciding which bag of chips to buy. Weighing her options, I think. The place had a Valium vibe, slow and easy, nary a care in the world. A little bit numbing in the air conditioning, too. I came down an aisle and saw Mrs. Morin standing in front of the ice cream fridge. I hadn't seen her in 15 years, maybe longer. I wasn't sure if she was staring at a reflection in the glass or just lost in thought. Maybe it was a bit of both. Or maybe one that led to the other. She looked sort of the same as I remember her. Tall. A little more stooped now, maybe. Still thin. Her hair was dyed brown and curled under just below her ears. There were more lines on her face. She was wearing a London Fog-type raincoat cinched tight at the waist, a brown skirt that went down to her knees, and a pair of brown nylons, a darker brown line running up the back of them. She was overdressed for the day, I thought, or maybe she was just cold, certainly cold enough in Mike's. She couldn't get warm. We'd been neighbors, Lived on the same side of the street, uh, Eugenia Street, just up from St. Mary's. Our houses sat opposite, separated by another street called Albert. There was a ravine just down from the houses. It was a place of mystery to me, a place to wonder about, a place far out beyond my reckoning at that point. People would appear through the trees at the top of the path. People I didn't know, had never seen before, and might never see again. Oh, just passing through, my mother said. Don't talk to them, she told me. You don't know who they are or where they're going. She didn't say anything about watching them, though. As a kid, the two popular pastimes were watching and getting into stuff. And while doing either, I was too busy to recognize that other people were doing pretty much the same thing. The trees on the slope of the north side of the ravine pushed right up against the Morin's hedge at the back of their backyard. Our backyard drifted into a wild orchard. He had to cross the road to get to the path that led to the ravine, if you're going down from our place. The path led off Amelia Street on one side, where Richie Godden and his people lived, cut down into the trees, passed through the bog, and came out in the continuation of Amelia Street on the other side, where Paul Leeper lived with his family. It was a steep drop from either side, and the ravine was a place left alone by the authorities. The trees were scruffy, my father said though he admired the red maples and old oaks that towered above the scruff here and there. It was a wild place, 
Some said a wolf lived down there. Someone else was sure they'd seen a grizzly bear. I never saw any proof of that. But I did see some wild-looking characters go down into or arrive out of the ravine. At Mike's milk, Mrs. Morin continued to stand statue still in her polished brown leather shoes. Her hands shook a little bit, had popped veins and liver spots on them. She was wearing her wedding ring, though her husband, Fred, I think his name was, had died many years before. They'd had one child, maybe two, but I remember one, a daughter. She was in her late teens, I think, when I was just three or four. When I was in my baby harness on the clothesline in the backyard, I could see over to the Morins in their backyard. They were always dressed up, at least dressed up the way I understood dressed up was. But my fashion sense was pretty limited. I mean, I spent the entire summer of my fourth year in a fake leopard skin bathing suit, so the bar was set pretty low. Mrs. Morin was always put together, as my mother used to say. I found that funny, put together. I mean, aren't we all put together in some way? Mrs. Morn wore outfits. That's what my mother called them. Outfits, not clothes. She was always dressed properly for the occasion. Skirts and dresses most of the time, except when she was gardening. Then it was a full makeover. She wore pants, slacks, really, and a white blouse or blouse. She had white gloves that would get dirty over the course of the day, but the next morning she'd start her gardening with a brand new pair of clean white gloves. She must have had a thousand pairs. She had a large floppy sun hat that bobbed while she worked. It was tied off at her chin like a cowboy, and if a gust of wind came along, the brim would lift up, and then she'd look a little bit like Gabby Hayes from the Westerns on television. The Morins drank a lot of tea out of delicate-looking teapots that came with delicate-looking and matching teacups. They had silver tongs for the sugar and little spoons for stirring. They always had cookies and cake with their tea. They'd sit at their backyard table, legs crossed, sunglasses on, sipping and eating and chatting, Mr. and Mrs. Morn with their English accents and their daughter with her berry one. The Morins were as different to us as a bathtub plug is to an earthworm. The theorists say that in chaos theory, the butterfly effect is the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. A guy named Ed Lorenz offered the metaphorical example of the details of a tornado, the exact time of formation, the exact path taken, being influenced by minor perturbations such as the flapping of the wings of a distant butterfly several weeks earlier. Well, this happened to me. But it didn't take three weeks to go from the butterfly flap to the tornado hitting full force. No, it came much quicker. One afternoon in the summer of my fourth year, while in my harness and tethered to the clothesline in the backyard, a monarch butterfly landed on my arm. I stared at it for a moment, its wings looking like they'd been stuck together. I reached my fat four-year-old hand over to touch it, but not so fast. The monarch lifted into the air tickled the front of my face with her flapping wings and then jazz danced toward the deep grass and wild flowers of the orchard. I followed her. I watched as she landed on a tall piece of grass. She was gripping the stalk and standing sideways, defying gravity. Her wings once again glued together like they were in my arm, the grass bobbing like the head of a fake car dog. 
My tether would only let me go so far, and while I was close to touching her, I couldn't quite make it. Twisting my body and pulling, I eventually went a step too far, tripped, then slipped, and was ripped back into the yard and deposited on the ground. I lay there staring up into the branches of the apple trees and was about to go see what was happening with the butterfly when my hand caressed something in the dirt. Sitting up, I discovered it was a grey jackknife half buried in the ground. It had one of those silver shields on it. It was a two-blade affair, and it was in pretty rough shape. It must have been left out in the winter a bunch of times, by the look of it. I wondered how it ended up in our backyard. I was sure it didn't belong to anyone in the house. Then I thought about the ravine wild men. Could it belong to one of them? Had they come into our yard some dark rainy night, armed with a knife, ready to do danger, but had been spooked and dropped it in, in their retreat? I looked around. It was just me in the backyard. Wild men, nowhere to be seen. And the rule was, finders keepers, losers weepers. Try as I might, I couldn't get the blades unstuck from the holder. They were too rusted in there. But that night, my older brother started fiddling around with it, and he got the big blade open. But when he dug out the smaller blade, it just snapped off. He chucked it off the balcony, then got some of my dad's car oil from the basement and his whetstone from the kitchen, and went back to opening and shutting the large blade. I'm loosening it up, he told me. Once he was satisfied it was easy to open, he started to sharpen it with a whetstone, like he'd seen our dad do with this Sunday roast-cutting knife. Once he got it into tip-top shape, he told me he was going to keep it, because I'd probably just kill myself with it. But I told him I'd yell like hell and tell Mum and cry and tell Dad about the oil and the whetstone, so he finally relented, but not before he gave me a good thump between the shoulder blades, which made me want to cry. But I got what I wanted out of the deal, so held off for fear of losing my prize to one of my parents, who'd have to come and quell the hullabaloo. The next morning, I carefully tucked the knife into my fake leopard-skin bathing suit. After I'd been tethered to the back line, I took it out, keeping a weather eye, as my father used to say, for my mother. I started to cut up sticks and dig into the dirt at the edge of the orchard. It was a pretty good deal. But it wasn't until the third day that I realized I could use the knife to cut my tether and gain my freedom. The plan I hatched wasn't much of a plan, really. I mean, I was four years old. Cut the line, go into the orchard. That was about it. It was early afternoon, just after lunch. My mother was inside the house, paying the bills and looking after Mike, she said. My other siblings had gone to, well, wherever siblings go when they're not around. I took the knife out and started to saw the rope. It didn't take long. And as soon as I was free, I took off the tall grass of the orchard. When I got down to Amelia Street by the Leaper House, I scrambled across the road and then down into the ravine. It was cool in the forest, like sticking your head into a fridge. The whole place smelled like dirt. It felt different. I'd never been here before. I went down to the bog, but didn't see anybody around. Soon after, I found a little path that went up the north side of the ravine. When I got to the top of the slope, I found a vantage where I could see Mrs. Morin doing her gardening. She was right there, only a few feet away. I'd never been so close to her when it was just the two of us. I could hear her breathing. It was a little bit ragged, as my father would say, from her gardening work. Her husband and daughter weren't around. How am I going to get rid of that? She said in her English accent. I ducked down, thinking she'd seen me. You need a good digging. That's what you need, she said aloud. I realized that she was talking to her garden and not to me. So I left her there, not wanting to get caught and move down the hedgerow. 
cutting little branches with the knife as I went along. I came out to Albert Street and could see our backyard across the road. All was quiet over there. Nobody had missed me yet. I snuck up the ditch, keeping an eye on our house as I moved toward Eugenia. The Morins had some really tall roses running along the side of their house. I pulled one down for a sniff and cut my finger on a thorn. My reaction was immediate. I used the jackknife to get back at the rose and cut the head off it. And, well, then I kind of went off. I cut the head off of all of them, and I was tossing the tops onto the road. I don't really know why. Mrs. Morin had seen my display of criminality and let out a whoop that brought my mother to the back porch. Well, things went lickety-split after that, I can tell you. The two women closed in on me at a pace I'd never observed in either of them. I think my mother might have even hopped over the backyard fence. Mrs. Morin was carrying a pair of scissors, and my mother had an envelope opener in her hand. I dropped to the ground. This was no Bonnie and Clyde getaway situation. I was busted, and I knew it. While I cried, like a four-year-old, on the ground, my mother and Mrs. Morin were filled with gasps and plenty of spirited language. I was grabbed by the shoulder by one or the other or both and shook. They took turns yelling at me. What's wrong with you? What's running through your mind? Why would you do such a thing? What did these roses ever do to you? The jackknife was ripped from my hand and used in evidence when the court assembled for my prosecution later in the day. That night, I sat in the dining room in an uncomfortable chair, still in my leopard-skin bathing suit, with my father, my mother, Mr. and Mrs. Morin, talking about me like I wasn't there. My siblings were watching from somewhere around the corner and were chased off periodically, but like seagulls, they'd just come back. Somebody at the table mentioned reform school, and my mother said she'd have the priest give a talk to me. My father told anyone who'd listen that a change in attitude was in very short order. Following the guilty verdict, my dad painfully wrote a check for $25 to pay for the vandalized roses. The Morins left our house semi-satisfied, but still angry. Twenty-five bucks was a considerable sum of money at that time, and being Catholic, the guilt of the incident came in waves and was showered down on me any time I slipped up as way of explanation for my slipping, that I hadn't learned anything from past experiences, especially the cutting of the rose heads. It's not really a thing of the past for a long time, but a tool to lever me back into shape when I was bent out of shape. Mrs. Morn, I said quietly at Mike's milk, her body jumped. I guess I'd called her down from the stars. As she stepped back from the ice cream fridge and looked in my direction, I could see her eyes were clouded with cataracts. Who's that, though? She said in her perfect English accent. Hi. Yeah, sorry to startle you. It's just Pete Smith, John and Isabel's son. It took her a moment to figure out what I'd said. Then she reached out her arms and shuffled toward me. Not sure what was happening. I stood where I was. When she got close, she pulled me toward her and hugged me. Thank you, she said quietly. Thank you. Wasn't sure what I was being thanked for. She let me go and asked if I'd do her a favor. I nodded, then not sure she could really see me, said, Sure, no problem, Mrs. Morin. Whatever you, whatever you need. I'm so terribly lonely, is he? I'm fine otherwise. Just lonely, you understand? She spoke so calmly and with her English accent, it was like she'd just asked me to pass the cream or something. Would you please have your mother call me, Peter? I told her I would and asked if she needed a hand with anything. Two small tears rolled down her cheeks and she said in her calm English voice, No, all is good with me, Peter. 
but please have your mother call me and thank you for saying hello. That means quite a lot, actually. It's very kind of you. She turned and slowly made her way to the front of the store and out into the late afternoon sun. I'd forgotten what had come into Mike's form. By the time I stepped outside, Mrs. Morin was nowhere in sight. It was almost like she wasn't there at all. I told my mother about the meeting, and she just looked off and said, Mrs. Morin, haven't thought about her in years. How's she doing? Not sure. She said she was lonely, and I'm not sure she's seeing too good these days. Her eyes. Does she still live on Eugenia? My mother continued to stare off. Well, I don't know. After we moved to Richmond Hill, we sort of lost touch. When she asked if I had her phone number, I said I didn't. She told me it was okay. She'd get it from somewhere else. I don't know if she ever got a hold of Mrs. Morin or not. It's funny how you land in people's lives and they in yours. We share some space and some time, then as quickly as it started, it's over. We disappear from each other. But every once in a while, maybe for five minutes... Fifteen years later, on a hot August afternoon, you step back in and share that life again. I've always thought that time is a trickster. Grabs memories willy-nilly from the vaults, puts them together with the experience I'm living in, and not afraid to reach into a future I might be imagining. Swirls everything together, leaving me in all time and no time at all. For a few moments, in Mike's milk, me and Mrs. Morin dropped into that time. We made contact, we embraced and then we went our ways, never to see each other again. And as the trickster time continues on in her work, it has taken me another thirty years to remember the experience, to be once more dropped into no and all time, to relive a memory as if it had just happened.